Ladies and gentlemen, the spectacular Spider-Man! Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. Otto Octavius was weak. Call me Dr. Octopus. From now on, we're poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Spider-Man! Threat or menace? Someone is so getting the look. Tell me there's something better. Go ahead, try. Welcome back to the final curtain interview. We have been building all the way to this one. As always, I'm Zach Joyner, your friendly neighborhood webmaster of Spy-Dude.com. And the Spidey Dude Radio Network, as always, on Spectacular Radio, I hand it off to the man, the myth, the legend, Greg Bashansky. Thank you, Zach. And I would also like to introduce Greg Wiseman, the supervising producer and story editor of the series, and Mr. Victor Cook, the super, another, another producer of the series and the director of this episode. Hey, thanks for having hey. me. Another, yep, thanks. Thank you guys for doing this. I mean, we're, it took a long time, a lot of twists and turns, both in the show and in real life, but we're finally here. We finally reached <laughs> Yes. A lot a lot in the world has changed since you started this podcast. Yeah, I believe you started <laughs> was it twenty fourteen? It took us six years. <laughs> Listen, it took it took us ten years to cover a two year long story with the clone saga on the network. So, you know, I mean it things happen. So your 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 show lasted a lot longer than our show. <laughs> oh, 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 we wished it lasted this long, oh, but yes. Oh, we'll talk about that more late, later on. But um, we're gonna begin this show, this interview. We Zach and I recently rewatched the episode. You two, I assume, recently rewatched the episode. It's a big finale. Over ten years later, what's it like watching this episode, Final Curtain, with fresh eyes? Well, the thing I remember most is uh, when it first aired, they aired the first 22 minutes of, or first 20 minutes of the episode with no dialogue. <laughs> that was literally our next question. That was, you must have been reading our notes because we were literally going to ask that the very next. <laughs> I, so the thing I that hit me when I rewatched it last night is, oh, good, there's dialogue on the Blu-ray. Because <laughs> awesome. I've seen the episode many times, but I hadn't actually watched it on the Blu-ray before. And uh, I, every time now that episode comes on, I have this moment of horrified anticipation where, will there be dialogue? Will there not be dialogue? <laughs> so that was my Do we know what happened there? Do we know what happened with that? Is that just, you know, we no, I, were, we, we had multiple episodes. I don't know if this is one of them, but where we were down to the wire with retakes a lot, a lot to where it was almost like this didn't happen, but it's almost like we ran to the broadcaster with the tape in our hand and dove and put it into the slot just before it would air. I mean, that's how down to the wire we were. I'm not sure. <laughs> But that's not what happened here. 
No. Yeah. That's when that show aired, you know, the show was sent fully mixed and somehow the music track and the sound effect tracks were there. And when this episode opens, it's on a fight scene between Spider-Man and, and the pumpkin heads, the gob squad. Right. And the only dialogue are grunts from the pumpkin heads being hit and Spidey's interior monologue. So right. you could believe when the episode begins that it's just this stylized fight sequence with no grunts <laughs> and just no dialogue, right? And then Act 1 begins and after the main title, and you've got people clearly talking and there's no dialogue. And the thing that hit me within a Hello? day was all the people who wrote on the internet. I don't know about the choice to do this as a dialogue free episode. I, it's already, <laughs> I'm not sure it really worked. And I was like reading these posts going, are you kidding me? You actually thought that's what we did. <laughs> um, uh, what I, I don't know what happened, but what I picture happening is the guy in the control room is having a conversation with a buddy, and he's leaning on a button <laughs> that shuts off the dialogue so that it could be switched to Spanish or something or some other language, right? Right. Um, and at some point, the buddy who's facing the guy looks at the screen and says, shouldn't those guys be talking? And the guy turns around, realizes he's leaning on this button, goes, oh, shit. And he takes his arm off the button. And because on the original airing, the dialogue cuts in about two minutes, three minutes before the end of the episode. Wow. And so somewhere in there, whoever was running this thing realized the mistake they had made and corrected it. But it was only after... You know, the episode was almost entirely done. So, uh, watching it, a couple of things uh, I was reminded of was just, like, how uh, big it was in terms of the army of pumpkin heads, the gob squad. Yeah. It was huge. I mean, on the storyboard, it was just, oh, my gosh. How is animation going to pull this off? And... Uh, and I remember how actually harder it could have been because the pumpkin heads weren't originally conceived as pumpkin heads. They were henchmen of uh, Green Goblin back in episode seven. That was the intention. And uh, for Sean Galloway uh, was still working on episode three. You know, there was so many New Yorkers and college students and high school students in episode three that we had to, how are we going to have create detention? And so basically we took some already designed characters and put pumpkin heads on them and just recolored shirts, a bunch of different colors. Um, so that army of pumpkin heads you see in this episode is probably like about really seven designs just with different colored jackets. And, uh, the other thing, it, it still bothers me. I, I don't think it bothers Greg at all, but the editing on this, I remember, was so tight. It was so tight. Usually, uh, we, it, to me, I like how all our episodes turned out editing-wise. 
I felt like we got everything in there that we wanted. But this one, I felt like I still feel this way. We had like almost too much narration on that opening uh, teaser. I, I was hope I was hoping we could have had a few more clear spaces, but uh, but overall, I'm like really happy with the episode. It was super hard, but it turned out pretty good. So how close to the to the deadline were was this episode? I know that there was kind of a delay with it airing in the States, but I know it aired fairly early, like overseas comparatively. It was there was there a delay or was it just Or well, uh, there wasn't a delay on our end. I mean we, we had ship dates and delivery dates. Um I mean I mean I don't know if this is one of the episodes affected, but we had quite a few episodes that we had some technical errors on that we would have to push the air date back a week or two. I don't know if this was one of them. Okay. I, I just didn't know if, like, because I know that this, see, correct me if I'm wrong, Greg Mishansky, but this was season two, so it was Disney XD, right, when it came out in the States? Oh, I, I yeah. see the delay you're talking about. You're right. The second season aired in Canada, I think, first. Yeah. Bulgaria. Before, before Disney. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I was going to kind of talk to both of you guys about this questions for both. Let's talk about your approach for the season in series finales. How do you balance when you know there's a renewal and when you kind of don't know? Is there is there a different approach that you guys take or is there just, uh, you know, you're you're building towards the big bad in the finale and then, you know, leave things open ended later on? We almost never at the script stage, it's very rare to know that there's a renewal. You know, uh, by the time the episode's produced, sometimes you know, sometimes you don't. But when you're so far back that you're still scripting mm-hmm. um, in this long process that is the animation production cycle, um, you rarely know if you've got to pick up. Um, and certainly we didn't know one way or another on Spider-Man. Okay. So what I do at the end of every season of any show that I'm a showrunner on is this thing called open-ended closure, (laughs) where you're closing out the major plot lines from the season, but you're not shutting down the show, you know, boarding up the windows and turning out the light and walking away. You know, the idea is life goes on. There's always more stories. And I even like putting, you know, little hints in there. This episode, you know, showed the Connors moving to Florida and Mr. Roman departing for the Caymans. Um, you know, just to show, hey, this isn't over. And then if it is, it is. We've at least finished out the plot line uh, of the season. You know, we've revealed that who the Green Goblin really was. I don't feel guilty about it. I wish there had been a third season, but I don't feel guilty that we ended it the way we did. But... uh that's always the game plan because you never know for sure. Right. 
we we put in our uh, we put a little starred thing not in our a, notes. Not a not a cliffhanger. People tweet to you about this show about Young Justice season two and others saying why those shows have to end on a cliffhanger, and you're always explaining to people that it's not a cliffhanger. No, I mean you know it's clearly not a cliffhanger. Right. No at least danger. At least, at least. It leaves the door open for more, hopefully. Right. And so people have come to define cliffhangers very strangely in my book. Not everybody, but a lot of people sort of define cliffhanger as you're not tying a neat little bow on every single tiny little plot line. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, even the fact that there are bad guys out there as opposed to you end a season with literally every bad guy in jail, I guess, or dead. Um, <laughs> right. And otherwise it's a cliffhanger. I mean, it's not like Spider-Man's hanging from a cliff or tied up in front of a moving train. When the episode ends, there's no, there's not even like, you know, I can buy who shot Jr. That's a cliffhanger because, Oh my God, that's a huge mystery you've left unresolved. But the mere fact that, Norman Osborn is flying to the Caymans under a false identity. Um, that's not a cliffhanger. That's, you know, uh, an open end to the thing, but it's not, no one's in danger. No, no huge mystery is left hanging or anything like that. Um, so I, I have very little sympathy for people who are like, you ended on a cliffhanger. I'm like, God, I really, really did it. You know, we did it. <laughs> it right. It's just not true. Story-wise, I, they were way ahead of uh, when we actually were at the end of production. So uh, in terms of your question, uh, we were kind of uh, uh, like the, a sinking, sinking ship crew-wise by then. We were ending. There was no pickup. Uh, if there was going to be a pickup, it was going to be after everybody was laid off. So as we were hemorrhaging crew members, it was – sort of strategizing who was going to be kept to storyboard it. So, uh, like Adam Benwick and Sahin Ursaz, they did amazing work all season, but never on the same episode. And uh, so this was the episode where we were trying to keep sort of uh, our mainstays as long as possible, and uh, they got cast uh, storyboarding together on this one. So uh, for us, it was uh, how to get it done as best we could. Nice. So how does the approach and direction change between a normal episode and the season finale? Some big budget shows save their best for last budget-wise. Is it similar in animation? Uh, we have the same budget. It wasn't uh, any different in approach. Uh, I'd say the approach was what I just said. I guess I jumped the gun a little bit. Was uh, like who was who was going to board it because like throughout the season we would have one staff storyboard guy and then to, to, to board about an act and then the other two acts are freelance and uh, it's it's a big strain and workload on the directors and the revision artists uh, when uh, you're freelancing so much of the show in such a short turnaround uh, and choreographing all that action but in this one like I said we were able to kind of hold on to our star staff people uh, uh, and have them board on this one. Um, uh, it was uh, uh, amazing. You know, the uh, Shaheen 
sported the season finale teaser of uh, the first season, the rooftop thug fight. And so he, he, in a way, the way he boarded the pumpkin head fight in the teaser was a little bit of a homage to uh, the season one finale in terms of the spike ball weapons shooting from the the bazooka gun and stuff like that. So it was a lot of fun. Nice. And finally, finally, we learned the Goblin's identity. How satisfying was it that people thought it wasn't Norman Osborn? Uh, I mean, for me, it was, it felt pretty good. I mean, I, I think we had a mixed group. There were people who probably thought it was Norman from day one. I mean, because it always has been. But But the fact that we were able to misdirect people and the way we were able to misdirect them, I mean, to me... My favorite beat in there, and this was a great script by Kevin Hoff. Um, my favorite beat in there is Norman twisting Harry's leg in the flashback <laughs> so that Harry would limp to match the fake limp that Norman had done that Spidey had seen. And just the the son of a bitchness of that. You know I mean? um, <laughs> He's a magnificent that, bastard. You know, the fact, it's like no one thought Norman was father of the year, but it just takes it to a whole another level. His right. framing his son and not just putting him in the costume, but literally injuring him in order to pull off the illusion, you know? Um, to me, it's so... It just, it still gives me like a little chill, you know, just like, uh, how evil is this guy? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, for somebody that hasn't seen it in a long, like this finale in a long time, I'm sitting there watching it, me and Greg are watching it together. And literally, I'm going in my head, I'm like, how did they pull that off with Norman? How did they pull it? And then, like, right before the reveal, I was like, oh, it's Chameleon. And in my head, I didn't say it out loud. So, like, the way y'all did that, I remember thinking that same thing whenever I watched it the first time. But, you know, taking time between between viewings, I, I thought it was a stroke of genius for, for Chameleon to make his make his appearance and, and just basically just jump out the uh, jump out the helicopter like a boss. <laughs> what I actually like also like about Chameleon throughout the episode during the first part of it, the first night, he feels very Norman Osborn as she feels as in control of the situation as you would expect Norman to be. But by the second night, he's kind of stammering around. He doesn't quite know what's going on, and you begin to think something is up. Yeah, I mean, you know, we what we tried to do, I mean, since we had this plan from day one, you know, it's not like, oh, what are we going to, how are we going to reveal this? Well, you know, we knew what we were going to do. We knew in season one, we were going to end the season with the audience thinking that Harry Osborn was the Green Goblin. And in the comics, you know, Harry was the second Green Goblin. So it's like, I thought there was a shot that the audience, that, that a percentage of the audience would be pissed about it, but they did at least believe that that's what we were trying to do. Um, and it fit in with the whole Harry addiction story and that kind of thing. But, you know, we had that plan. We showed Norman and the Green Goblin together in that one scene um, in season one. And we knew, and then in the very next episode, we introduced Chameleon. 
And we also showed Chameleon posing as Norman Osborn, among other people, but posing as Norman Osborn. And so we felt like we had really played fair with the audience. Like all the clues were there, everything you needed. And in that first night in this episode, he is very Norman-esque, except he apologizes for something very minor. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I've got to take this call up. I apologize. I have to take this call. And, it, in, you know, we're hoping that it just scoots by everyone, you know, skates by everyone, that they don't notice the apology. But, of course, it's there. So, again, we've made such a big deal out of Norman never apologizing on this show. Right. Um, the fact that he does, again, felt like we were playing fair with the audience. And... Then, you know, we try to create all these other suspects, including Mencken, obviously. But um, I tried to do this thing with Mom, where Emily (laughs) Osborne comes down the stairs, and we have never heard her speak. And she comes down the stairs, and and they're like, we've got this handled. And so she goes off, and she goes off camera. And then, you know, three minutes later, Goblin shows up. Right. So that... When you get to this moment toward the end of the episode where it's like, okay, I'm not the goblin. You're not the goblin's dad. Who And Mencken's not the goblin. Who else knew about this? Well, only mom knew about this. It's this outrageous sort of thing, but I'm hoping that at least a few people were like, that's why they put Emily Osborne in the show, because she was going to be the goblin. <laughs> and that's not why we put her in there. But, uh, Listen, but it made me laugh out loud. <laughs> it's supposed to be funny, but it, it's also supposed to, I'm hoping that at least a few people are like, oh, my God, is it mom? You know? <laughs> I love and, it. <laughs> and then there's still this great moment when... Spider-Man really gets messed up, but he's got the mask on a wet. So then there's this big heart, you know, this heartbeat kind of thing where it's like, okay, we're all looking up because we know Goblin blocked his mask. What are we going to see? Right. And it's Norman. And I think it's a pretty, I think the way uh, Vic and his team did that, the reveal is pretty awesome. I think so, too. A hundred percent agreed. But no, uh, my other question, uh, and this kind of goes for both of y'all. I know you guys are both Spider-Man fans. So do you think Norman loves Harry or does he just simply tolerate him? Because those are two very different things. I think he has a twisted. He loves him, but he's twisted. That's my feel. Yeah, I don't think Norman understands what love is, but to the extent that he understands the term he thinks he loves him um but he doesn't understand what real love is he doesn't get it right um you know norman uh you know harry particularly by the end of the episode when his dad is quote-unquote dead you know knows how he his personality was changed by the globulin green which is a name i love um, and uh, and he assumes that his father's personality was changed by it. Mm-hmm. But Norman makes it very clear that he doesn't agree with that, that he's in complete control, 
that he took the, you know, he didn't drink the formula. He had these gas infusions controlled and it enhanced him in all these ways, but that he is um, still in control, still himself, that we are fundamentally talking to the Norman Osborne, uh, not only that we've always known on the show, but that, um, that from his point of view, he hasn't changed a bit. And when you think about his long-term dealings with guys like Otto and, and Tombs and stuff like that, it's hard to imagine that Norman was that different before globulin three, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's a debatable thing. It's clearly changed Harry's personality. So is it possible that Norman went from bad to worse or from maybe not bad, but just, kind of a jerk to evil um, because of the green. That's something that I think we intentionally sort of leave to the audience's interpretation. But Norman makes it very clear that he doesn't think so. Harry clearly does think so. Norman clearly doesn't. The truth may be somewhere in between. Interesting. Hmm. Hmm. One thing, something that, that might have been explored in a, in a future season, perhaps? Perhaps. Okay. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, on that note, I do want to say that I am glad that you didn't drag us out, nor us thinking Norman was dead for more than two minutes. I mean, famously, he was dead in the comics for over two decades before he was brought back. And I, and I, and I, don't get me wrong, I'm one of those people who was in favor of bringing him back. I thought something was missing and he filled a hole the books didn't quite have when he did come back, but. Also, sometimes as a long-term comic reader, you can kind of um, slap your forehead when they pull a stunt like that. So thank you for not dragging that out for um, however long it would have been in the alternate universe where we did get a third, fourth, fifth season and he eventually does return. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think our point of view, Vic, and you can correct me, God knows it's been a long time, but uh, I think when we discussed this, it was like, look, um, when they killed Norman off originally in the comics, they meant it. You know, then a decade or however long passes, 20 years, you said, I can't remember. And someone's like, we need to bring this guy back. But if you have the benefit of hindsight, we've talked about hindsight on this show a lot. Um, right. And you know that eventually you want to bring this guy back. Then you know, what's the point of, not having some fun with it right here, right now. You know, the characters think he's dead. That's important. But, yeah, let's give him, you know, let's dye his hair blonde, give him a blonde mustache and, and you know, a new name and send him off to the Caymans where he can lay low for a bit and maybe let Hobgoblin uh, sort of fill a gap for a little while until it's time for the original to reassert himself. Right. I, I like, I like what we did. Cause I like we, how you open the show with the question about uh cliffhangers. I felt like it's not a cliffhanger, but it left the door open, you know? Yeah. I was going to ask how Norman survived, but I think you've kind of answered that question. Uh, I'm assuming that the healing factor that was established in the comics that brought him back there was kind of what, how he survived because that was a lot of pumpkin bombs. <laughs> yeah, it was. 
I get asked that question all the time. How did Norman survive? To which my answer is like, I don't really care. (laughs) 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 Only the nerds are going to be the ones like, well, how did Norman survive? There was a lot of pumpkin bombs and, you know. I mean, Uh, I'm a nerd too. It was a lot of pumpkin bombs, but it's just sort of like, how did he survive? I don't know. He had some kind of contingency plan. I don't know what it was. Don't really care. I just, you just, if you've written Norman convincingly, written the goblin convincingly, then I think you can just buy that this is a guy who had a backup plan. And working out the details of it seems almost redundant to knowing who he was and that that's something he could pull off. Um, I mean, he's pulled off so many things across the two seasons. Um, is it, you know, the question is, for the audience or individual audience members is, do you believe he could have pulled it off? And if the answer is yes, then does it really matter how? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is no, then we've failed in our jobs anyway. And it doesn't matter that one way or the other, you know I mean? We could show some huge visual flashback to explain it. And if you don't believe he's a guy who would pull that off, it would just seem artificial. So um, I think you, if we've done our jobs through 26 episodes um, with this guy, then you believe he could pull it off and the how doesn't matter. If you don't believe he's the kind of guy who could pull that off, then nothing we showed you wouldn't just feel like, well, they really had to jump through hoops to make that play, you know, kind of thing. Um, You have to either believe in it or not. And I think, I hope, again, if we did our jobs right, that for the most part, the audience believes it. Oh, I definitely believe it. And I would also like to say that the uh, in the comic books back in the 70s, Norman Osborn had one of the most iconic deaths in all in the history of comics. So maybe if you ever, if you brought him back and you ever wanted to kill him off for real, you could save that for the real deal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's that yeah. sphere on the end of the glider. <laughs> We've been every time yeah, it pops I mean, out, yeah, I think no, about that. Right. <laughs> Go on. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I, th- when when Greg says they were they intended on him to be you know dead at the end of it, they intended. I mean, getting stabbed through the heart generally tends to you know you don't come back from that. But thank you, comics. Uh, <laughs> so well, I, mean, I mean, and that used to. Be- that used to be the rule. If you didn't see the body, you know, if the body falls off a cliff into the ocean and the characters all think, well, that had to have killed them, but you don't find the body. The rule was, okay, he was, he didn't die. We know right. he's going to come back. Even if the characters don't know, the readership knows. But, you know, if he, he gets impaled and the body's still sticking there and they take it down and he's dead and they take it to the coroner and they bury it, and the odds are he's dead, and that used to matter. Right. But, you know, um, in modern comics, uh, even the body doesn't matter anymore. Uh, I think the concept of death has just gotten... I think, uh, on the one hand, they've overused death, so they kind of had to keep on doing one death after another because they, you know, killing off a character 
just became a shock value moment, you know? Yes. Oh, it's a, it's a shock value thing in this story. Uh, Or even if the writer, editor, whatever intended for it to be permanent, at some point you sit there and go, okay, look, you know, this isn't going to be permanent because you're not going to be writing on this book forever. And this character is too important to the overall mythos to stay dead. So right. all you've done is created this shock value moment, even if that wasn't your personal intent. And I think the concept of death in most modern comics, now I really sound like an old fart, but uh, I just think it's been eroded beyond the point of, um, uh, you know, of matter anymore. Because we all just know, yeah, you did that to shock us, and he'll be back. Hell, the odds are good he'll be back in your version of this, but even if you are determined, you know the next guy's going to bring the character back. So so by us showing Norman here at the end of the episode, we're like going, we're not playing that game. We're not going to pretend that anyone but the characters – believes that Norman is really dead. Um, and that way, you know, we've signaled, you know, if we bring him back, we're not cheating the audience. We, we let the audience know within minutes. I mean, sure, we play the beat that he's dead for uh, the death scene itself, quote-unquote, and the funeral scene. But altogether, that's maybe a minute and a half, I would guess. Uh, two minutes tops, and then we reveal him. So we're not, the audience can't feel cheated when he comes back. We didn't pretend. Right. Um, also, I do have to ask one question here. And um, because there's, you like to stick little gargoyles references into the episodes. And I know there's the two flight numbers, but I've got to ask, was Mr. Roman's appearance, a deliberate homage to John Castaway? Uh, it was. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought. Well, uh, where did the where did Mister Roman come from? The the name uh, I I'd never heard it before this it, like before the series. I would have assumed there was uh, go on. And this is so obscure and stupid. But what did you think it was, Greg? Before uh, I reveal where I got it, I was about to say the uh, Norman and the Norman conquerors, Roman conquerors, <laughs> of uh, something more esoteric. That's well, what? That's cleverer than my answer. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, uh, to some extent, it's just a play on, you know, what's Norman spelled backwards. Uh, uh, and it's not quite Roman, but it's close. Um, okay. But the thing is, is there was a character in uh, a comic called the Disco Dazzler, um, <laughs> whose name was... I'm forgetting how to pronounce it. Oh, yeah. Uh, Roman Nekobach, which backwards <laughs> was Namor, Namor Hoboken. <laughs> and so nice. I was always struck by, and it was, I feel like, I want to say Jim Shooter wrote that. And that is like, that's where you've got, I mean, it was just so weird that it was Hoboken spelled backwards and Namor spelled backwards. And so that always just really stuck with me as, as just like supremely goofy. 
And so when I was looking for an alias for him, um, it just flashed into my head. And I thought Norman, Roman, it, it, it sort of works. So I went with Mr. Roman. Nice. And, um, but that's what? the obscure way my brain. Nice. I, I, I like that. I've never heard of that before, but I like that. And I've read a lot of classic comics. Um, I do think we should talk about the deterioration of Peter and Liz's relationship. I mean, because we saw that slowly unfold over the course of the season, and it's mm-hmm. sad when it's over. Yeah, and uh, uh, let's have uh, Vic answer, you know, just from the just from his perspective, what he thought about that since it's been a little bit. <laughs> yeah. well, no, I, I, well, it's really a tribute to Greg and the writers. They they wrote the uh, the arc. I thought it was handled really well, and it, it was. Uh, it was just all laid out for us to be able to, to direct that emotion and uh, the the acting and the the angles that help tell that story. Um, you know, we always uh, I remember when we go through the boards, we didn't make animatics on these shows, but we always tried to put uh, looks as much as we could. Like as I said earlier, the soup these episodes are so tightly packed. Uh, but we always tried to have reaction looks and um, emotional reactions on faces without dialogue as much as we could. And, uh, and we did it uh, for this too. So uh, uh, yeah, it, it was a great, uh, great emotional arc. I mean, really, I want to give credit to the actors. I, I mean, I think, you know, uh, Alana, who played Liz, um, obviously Josh, who played Peter. Uh, um, that's just a great scene between the two of them. And, the, you know, one thing that was fun is, you know, it becomes clear to Mary Jane that soon previous that Pete and Gwen are finally going to get together. And, you know, she has this line, finally, and to her it means one thing. And then you know, you have this scene where Pete jumps Liz and Liz looks around and feels completely at a loss because all her old friends who she'd kind of left behind a little bit to be with Peter, they're all coupled off. And she realizes that this is humiliating on top of herself. And so she stages a big breakup where she breaks up with him. And then Sally says, finally, which has a, I mean, Sally and Mary Jane are in the exact same place with two totally different perspectives. I love that. Um, and, and, uh, but then, you know, the key thing that makes it work is um, that performance by Alana, which is so great. And then her going off alone to cry because, you know, she was right. And, I mean, one thing that she says at the beginning of the episode is, why do I feel like if Gwen, if it had been Gwen in the play, you would have been there? And he answers honestly that he would not have been there no matter who it was. Um, And that's true because, you know, he was literally locked in a prison. Uh, (laughs) But but the fact of the matter is, is what she's really saying to him is, why do I feel like you want to be with Gwen, not with me? Yeah. And he 
lying to himself, and Aunt May calls him on it. And, you know, when Harry walks out that door later in the episode, and Pete's about to follow, and Pete and can't be alone together. They figured that out by now. And then he, like, stops himself and turns around and talks to how he screwed everything up, and he's not even quite sure how it happened. Um, but he did. And they kiss, and Gwen is too honest to complete that kiss because, um, or even start that kiss because she's like, no, we can't do this. We have to break up with them first. And so he does, and this becomes, in essence, I mean, Pete should break up with Liz. But, of course, for him, at the end, he's left with no one. He doesn't have Liz. He doesn't have Gwen. And that's the Parker luck, you know? But the thing is, is he didn't deserve Liz. Nope. No. Not I mean, at all. He shouldn't have been with her in the first He shouldn't have been with her in the first place. And that's kind of on her, at least in the, you know, on New Year's Eve. But after that, he, uh, he should have, uh, gotten his head on straight way before this. And all the time he apologized, sort of convinced her that she was crazy and that he still wanted to be with her, he was wrong. Right. And so he deserves to wind up with no Mm-hmm. At least for now. I don't mean forever, but for now. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and then Harry shows a bit of his true colors at the end by knowing that Gwen was going to break up with him to be with Peter and manipulating her into not going through with it. All right. And um, speaking of Harry, we should discuss his development over the course of the series because by the end there, he really kind of is his father's son. Yeah. I mean, he's taken action. Um, he's... Uh, and he's manipulating people the way his father. I mean, he's not as sophisticated at it, but but yeah. And again, I, I mean, I can't give enough credit to to Jamie, our voice director, Jamie Thomason, and our phenomenal. Cast. I mean, James Arnold Taylor as Harry is great. He's so vulnerable and yet so dangerous by the end, and uh, and just. Great stuff from everybody. We talked about how many actors, the outrageous quantity of actors we had episode after episode. And this one is actually pretty modest. There are only 13 actors. In it. But even now I look at it and I'm like, okay, out of those 13, only five had significant amounts of dialogue. And most of the rest had like a, you know, at most four or five lines. Yeah. Um, Jeff Bennett comes in to do, as far as I can tell, one line houseman. And it's a great line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mr. Osborne, Master Harry, Spider Man. <laughs> it's a great moment. But like, I'm seriously like, how did we get away with this? <laughs> nice. No one stopped me from one line of dialogue for an actor and bringing him in. It's like, I. Never get away with that. 
Nice. <laughs> Speaking of single lines, I really like one of your single lines in this one. I have no response to that. <laughs> we uh, laughed at that line the other I mean... day. <laughs> yes, we did. We uh, Greg literally said out loud, the, great, great line, uh, great read there, Greg. <laughs> like, to, 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 to each other. So, well done. Uh, you as Donald Minkin. Uh, I, there can never be anybody that can play Donald Minkin other than you, uh, Mr. Wiseman. I think that's... I, really, I, I've done the signature Donald Mankin for all time. <laughs> yeah, that's probably <laughs> that iconic character. Yes, yes. Yeah, even now, Vic. This kind of takes us back a little bit to what we said. We asked earlier, but uh, just how much fun did you have directing the the episodes that you got to direct? And 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 since we're kind of at the tail end of the series, just kind of give us your overall thoughts of that. <laughs> It was uh, a blast to do, you know. And, uh, you know, like I said, we usually would have to divide up the shows with two freelancers and a staff guy, and our staff guys are always our like our anchors. And this one, all three were on this one, oh. so uh, it was a beautiful thing to behold. Uh, it was amazing. Our, on the art direction side, a lot of it was already established. So if you no, when Green Goblin shows up, the color of night uh, changes from our normal night, from what you usually see. It's a subtle thing, but we always have a purple night sky for for the Goblin episodes. Uh, it was a blast. It was jam-packed, like all our episodes are jam-packed. And um, uh, uh, we got everything in there. Like I said, my, my only qualm is the teaser a little bit. Um, but uh, it was fantastic. And, you know, I was always a little jealous of Greg uh, making a, an appearance as Minkin. So I made a cameo, too. I'm in the, I'm in the airport. <laughs> yeah, with the airport. Yeah. With I'm, both I'm, your kids. I'm, I'm, I'm in the airport with my daughter and my son. So a little trivia for you guys. There you go. See? Yeah. Greg, we learned something new. I, I didn't even know that. I, I have to look again, but I but I believe that Artemis Croc from Young Justice is also your daughter. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know about that, but uh, but uh, well, I think you guys know the fans know in the in the main title sequence. Uh, you could see Greg and I uh, in the main title, every main title. Uh, yes, in front of the Michael Vogel. Yeah, and Michael Vogel, and, right? Yeah. All right, Vic, uh, just to turn to you for a second, uh, backgrounds in the in these episodes always seem to tell a story. You have Gwen's brownstone with pictures of George and Helen's wedding, the Parker house. It shows pictures of Peter growing up with Uncle May, or Uncle May and Aunt Ben. Uncle Ben and Aunt May. Uh, Osborne penthouse only has the masks and the arts. There's no sentimental family photos. How satisfying is it? when you're building out these, you know, essentially these sets that you get to put these little Easter eggs in and, and people take notice of them. It's uh it's uh it's a thrill when people find those things. Um, and we purposely design each place to reflect the, the personality of uh, the character. Um, you reminded me that uh, like for the school, I don't know if you noticed the school, the school colors are, are green and um the reason for that is of course if you look at all the classic spider-man villains they tend to be mostly green 
Mm. Uh, I don't know if that was an art direction choice because green looks good with the red or if it was just the printing process at the time of the 60s. But that's their colors. And so when we were doing Spider-Man, I thought, you know, we should pick up on that and make color the, uh, the color green, uh, the color of evil or, or oppression mm-hmm. for Spider-Man Peter Parker. So that's why we extended it past um, the, the actual villains and uh, the, the school colors are green. That's why the jocks, the cheerleaders, the hallways uh, are green to reflect that. And then the characters that didn't really have green in them, like Craven, for instance, mm-hmm. he made sure his, his eyes were green. So little things like that uh, is very satisfying. Greg, was there like any direction from your end as a, as the writer of like talking about the backgrounds or was that just, you let Vic kind of go hog wild on that? Hog wild. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure we had conversations about what we needed for this, that, or the other thing. Um, you know, we should really credit Vince too. Um, Vince Toyama, who was our, background what was his title background supervisor background. yeah we had Vince Toyama was our background supervisor we also had Kenny McGill and uh the yeah. thing about the the backgrounds of the show and I'm not talking about like for a specific character but it's more the overall style of the show is we it's New York right it is New York it's not a made-up place but we went and simplified it so uh to where like the foreground characters may have detail like you would normally see, but then you get to the mid ground, all of a sudden we just start dropping windows out of uh, the buildings and then you get further and it's like silhouettes. Um, and part of, and part of that was, but was in, in line with why the characters were designed with that simplicity. So we can have some crazy camera moves to go along with their crazy uh, action sequences. Um, and so the less, detailed the backgrounds were whenever we uh, wanted to move them, it was easier. And, and then the few times that we would do CG with the backgrounds, uh, it blended with the 2D, you know, I don't know if you remember, I can't remember if it was the uh, electro episode, episode two, where uh, Spider-Man is going through the city to get to school. And there's like two shots where the backgrounds are CG. Um, mm. But and we did it in Toon CG, but because our backgrounds are, in that simplified style, it kind of went together where you've probably seen this in other shows or even anime shows where the backgrounds are rendered and painted beautifully. And then you'd then you have that POV shot and all of a sudden it turns into like cell drawing. The background <laughs> music, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you can get that for a second, especially pre CG days. Uh, I, I, I wanted to avoid that. And that's why, um, uh, the backgrounds were uh, simplified like that. But like Greg said, yeah, Vince Toyama managed and overseed, uh, oversaw all of it. And um, and with uh, Kenny McGill uh, really adding to like what the style would be, making sure it really fit also with uh, the characters that Sean designed. Yeah, you talk about CG. I remember uh, in the 1990s Spidey cartoon, they they used a lot of 3D modeling and rendering, and it's very, very early computer CG. And so you can definitely tell when there's CG and when there's not CGI. And so I, the, the way you guys were seamlessly able to blend it together was just was just phenomenal. So yeah, kudos you, you to you guys. Yeah, you may have noticed, like, Vehicles too, certain vehicles like uh, you book episode one, the limousine, Montana's uh, helicopter. 
yeah, the helicopter. A lot of those shots are uh, a tune shader CG, and uh, it's just the same thought process of how we would do the backgrounds. Uh, if we did it simple enough, and when we do a tune shader, it hopefully it just goes together well. You, I couldn't. I couldn't tell on viewing it even the first or, or multiple times. I, you know, until you kind of point specific things out, I, I really couldn't tell. It was. It was very well blended. Uh, it's definitely a departure from from you know earlier animation. It just is, just shows you how much the technology has evolved over the years too. So well, yeah, you know, it's like 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 I said, I look at uh, you know quote unquote more realistic shows, and the painting style would be very painterly, like I said, and then they go to the shots that would turn into a cell drawing. Then I started looking at, before starting the show, I was like studying, um, looking at some of the primetime comedy shows, believe it or not, which you, you wouldn't think to look at for action shows. But I noticed on those shows, when they would cut to the POV background moving, it just blended. It, it didn't jar out of, the, out of the style that you'd been seeing the whole episode. So that's why we did that on Spider-Man. Sounds good. And it looks, the results were terrific. I still think the show holds up to this day. The animation is still stunning. I've never, I still haven't seen an action animated show that moves quite like this. So, Vic, my hat's off to you and your team. You did a phenomenal job. Yeah, the board guys, the directors, but also our overseas animation studios. Uh, some got it right away. Some took a few episodes of, uh, to get there, you know. I think the first episode, besides the episode one, uh, the teaser that we did for Comic-Con and sort of episode one with the vulture, uh, I think our lizard episode is the one that nailed it start to finish as far as the squash and stretch we wanted. I love that episode. It's just so beautifully designed. Now I've got a question that goes out to both of you since we're winding down the show. And granted, we've been talking about this for over 20 for podcasts covering over 26 episodes, but overall, what do you think makes Peter Parker such a great, compelling character? Why do you think he has stood the test of time that almost now, over five decades later, we're still talking about him, we're still making movies about him, TV shows about him, still fascinated by him? Uh, I think he's the, uh, he's the art, the everyman archetype. I mean, it's a, a pretty pure idea in one sense which is that he's got these powers but there are plenty of people stronger there are plenty of people faster um but he uh does his best with what he's got he's smart and half the time he has to or more than half the time he has to solve things by being smart but fundamentally what it comes down to what makes peter parker interesting as spider-man is that, yeah, it doesn't solve all his problems. You know, he still has girl trouble. He still has money trouble. He still has an aunt who has a heart condition. He's got, you know, all these issues that any typical human being has to deal with. And being a hero only exacerbates those problems, doesn't make them, doesn't simplify things, doesn't make it easier. Uh, it does give him an outlet, and that joy he takes in that outlet, the, the quipping, um, basically, uh, helps. And the fact that he keeps a sense of humor, despite all the tough stuff he's dealing with, is uh, is also appealing. 
But it, and that's what it comes down to. It comes down to the original appeal of what Stan and Steve did. Steve didn't create this uh, hugely muscled Kirby-esque character, uh, much as I love Kirby. Uh, and Stan created a guy with a real authentic voice um, that was contemporary, certainly for the time, but, you know, with a flick of the wrist, you know, it's easily to make him contemporary and modern now. Um, you update the slang and, and suddenly he's, you know, just as viable for 2020 as he was for 1962. Um, and uh, I think that's where the eternal appeal of the character is, uh, comes out of that freedom of swinging through the city uh, just opposed against having to deal with everyday life problems. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, he, he's, he's the everyman. But I, other thing I think the reason why he's so appealing is is what motivates him, what drives him. Because when he first got these powers, he wasn't out uh, to do good. He was out to sort of help himself. And when he didn't stop uh, the the criminal that later killed his Uncle Ben, he re- that's when he realized, wow, I've got these abilities and these powers, and I and, uh I need to use them for good, you know. With great power comes great responsibility. I think that is also one of the everlasting appeals of of uh, Peter Parker. Yeah, I think that's true too. It's such a classic ASAP. But and speaking of Peter Parker, were you ever afraid of making this version of Peter appear unsympathetic? I actually, looking back across the course of the series. While doing this podcast, it's uh, I thought it was a little bit courageous that even though we were always in his head and always understood where he was coming from, we didn't always agree with him. Sometimes he made some bad decisions, some bad calls, and I have found that often in other adaptations of the character, they they always want the audience to agree with him and under and be with him one hundred percent of the time, not think he's doing anything wrong. Just that life is kind of um poking them with a stick and being unfair to him and whereas here i'm i look at it, say we've talked about the relationship with liz for example all the things that he himself could have done differently i thought it was very courageous on your part to make him unsympathetic at times yeah well i don't know if we did make him unsympathetic but we certainly let him screw up uh and let the sympathy go to other characters at times. Uh, I think you're still sympathetic towards him because he's a kid and he's uh, torn by these different thoughts and different uh, desires. And, and he doesn't always know which way to turn. Um, And I still think that being sympathetic towards the character doesn't mean he's always right. Um, You know, on the other hand, I, that was never a concern for us, that we make sure he always seems sympathetic, always seems, uh, uh, you know, generally. We just knew that we had a character who the audience is going to give the benefit of the doubt to because, like you said, they're in his head. They know that he's basically coming from a good place. Um, and so it doesn't mean he's always going to make the right call. And that's one of, and the, one of my favorite. Go on. It's something. It's, it's endearing. It's an endearing 
thing. I, I he, Greg just reminded me of, I, of one of our winter or Christmas episodes where um, I think Gwen is uh, upset with uh, Peter at the skating rink, and then she skates off, and, and you think, oh, Peter's all his concern is about Gwen, and then Mary Jane skates up to give him advice, and then you get into Peter's thoughts, and he's like, wow, she's really hot. <laughs> you know, that could be perceived as unsympathetic, but like Greg said, he's a teenager, and it, it's kind of endearing. And I Well, and, and he gets called on it. He gets called on it. Mary Jane snaps yeah. her fingers and says, focus, you know. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> true. You know, you know we're, we've all been teenage guys, right? Yep. So we know. Well, and, and, and it was real. I think, and I, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Greg, but I think one of the things you tried, you guys tried to do was try to make a realistic portrayal of teenagers that sometimes is lost in the, the medium sometimes. Yes. It, it's Peter Parker's in love with absolutely in love with the girl that's right in front of his face, you know, and so which is very much a teenage thing. So, you know, I think that I've, I've listened to a lot of people talk about this show, you know, over the last few months just to see what, you know, what other people say. And it's almost universal praise. So but I, I think, you know, you, you guys tapped into that teenage experience and I really uh, have really appreciated it, especially now having a child of my own who in a few years will be a teenager, which terrifies me beyond measure. But, uh, yeah, thank you. They, for, they get over, they get over it. I, I, that's what I heard. I heard about 25. They start actually thinking you're cool again, somewhat or tolerating. Well, you. you know, it's because, you know, a person's brain doesn't fully finish. I think that developing until around 25 or 26. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. probably why. That's true. Uh, to jump into, oh, sorry, what'd you say? I didn't mean to step on. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no. I, but I really, before we do that, I really appreciated it because we never saw a moment where where the audience was like, "Oh, Toby, you should have gone the other way or done this or or even other animated depictions of of, of Peter." I feel like I liked that this one was allowed to make mistakes. I appreciated it. Yeah, I, I I agree there as well. Uh, so, uh, and you know, when crafting an animated show, because obviously there's there, there's the uh, animation and comics are similar in the fact that it, it is a marriage between audio and and and, and visual effects. Audio and what, comics. Yeah, audio and comics as well. So, what makes a compelling villain? You know, we, we see Norman in this episode, and he's finally unmasked. And is it – some people are like, oh, it just takes time to build that compelling villain. But what is it about villains that just make uh, – what, what makes them so fun to write, and what makes them compelling to bring to the screen? Yeah, we had yeah, written this question down, what makes a – what to you guys makes a compelling hero or villain in general? In this show, other works you've, you've worked on – or in general, what do you think? I mean, I have this, these theories about what makes a compelling villain. And, and for me, part of it is that it's got to be in some way a reflection of the hero that the villain's up against. I mean, uh, you have to find uh, an aspect. You know, it, it's the whole idea of in the purest terms of the evil twin. 
you know, and obviously not every character is going to be the evil twin, right? But in some way, you need to find that piece of the hero that you're reflecting, that this character, you know, but for the grace of God, so to speak, go I, that you could see how in some way how Peter could have turned out like Doc Ock or how Peter could have turned out like Norman Osborn, how there's an aspect of every one of those villains in Peter Parker and that's where they connect. Um, and that's where the danger is. It's less about who can punch harder and more about, you know, how corruptible are we as human beings? Um, how can we lose empathy? How can we lose a focus on what's on what's right and wrong? How did things turn out the way they do? And, and, to me, uh, you know, obviously a cool look and Spidey has one of the greatest rogues galleries in terms of the looks of his villains as frankly any character out there. But all that stuff contributes. But at the end of the day, what makes a villain really feel like a good opposite number to the hero is some connection that they have some similarity they have something that is reflected in uh in the hero yeah i agree with that i I agree with that for me it's also uh the personality or the gravitas or the you know the type of personality they're so different tombstone is so different in personality from you know sandman and i've I love Tombstone. I love the gravity of his uh, personality. From from an animation point of view, um, visually, uh, there, there are other things, you know, that that come into play. What makes a good villain? It's in those terms, you know. And Sandman uh, is fun just because of what he can do, you know. And then you have a villain like uh, Venom, who is almost very much a mirror of Spider-Man power-wise, and that's another challenge uh, of how to make that look and feel. Sounds about right. Meanwhile, I would say that Green Goblin is the dark trickster, trickster aspect to Spidey's more heroic trickster, or, my, or do you think I'm off on that one? Certainly, uh, this, I think that's true. Yeah, certainly in this adaptation especially. Oh, definitely. And I've seen that even across some of your other shows. I mean, Young Justice, for example, a team of young heroes. The main villain is quite literally the oldest man on Earth. Right. Exactly. So, Vic, uh, I'll, I'll jump this this question to you because it's about you know making New York City. It, New York City with Spider-Man is so much a integral part of him. Yes. It's it's uh, he's the old not only the ultimate everyman but he's also the ultimate New Yorker and you see that like in the Raimi films where he's fighting the Green Goblin and the New Yorkers are throwing stuff at these at at Norman's head which you know justifiably so uh, the city has his personality how, how important was it for you and you kind of somewhat touched upon this with with our first question or our question earlier but. How much? How important was it to bring the city to life when you're in the city, as the uh, from an art standpoint? We we wanted this to be New York. We wanted this to be New York, 
in the style of Sean's character designs, you know, as far as that. Mm. So it was very important. You know, that was all our reference. I mean, of course, unless it's Oscorp or something that is invented for the show, but the rest of New York, we wanted it to, to be New York. And the other part of New York, it, it's not just the buildings and the architecture, which we studied and Vincent yeah. Kenny studied and, and stylized, but it's the, the people, the background characters. And, uh, you know, Greg and I had an interesting conversation in the beginning of the show concerning um, the, the supporting cast, you know, changing you know, ethnicities of some of these characters to reflect New York. And, and you know, that just spread into even every incidental. So you watch the show and the background characters who aren't, you know, main characters, you're going to see them look of every background that you see in New York. You know, that, that to us makes it feel like real New York, even more than I would say even the early 1960s comic books, because uh, except for the assistant editor at the Bugle, there wasn't much diversity. So right. it was, it was mm-hmm. super important. There have, I mean, I'm a I'm a born and bred New Yorker. I've lived in New York most of my life, still living back here right now, and it has always been very important to me to see it depicted just right. And I've watched a lot of animation, and I can only think of three animated shows that have really captured the heart and soul of the city. And Greg and Vicky were involved with two of them. This being one of them. <laughs> Whereas um, the third one would have been uh, the last two seasons of Venture Brothers, and the, uh, that show is made by two born and bred New Yorkers in New York as, as right. well. But um, but Spectacular Spider-Man yeah. felt like New York City. Gargoyles definitely felt like New York City. Yeah, it's it's it, it set there, so it's important that it be that and look like that and feel like that. You know, it's not a it's not a fantasy version of New York like say Metropolis or Gotham. Right, uh, where you take these other liberties. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it was a blast, and um, and uh, credit a lot of that credit goes to most of that credit goes to Vince Toyama and Kenny uh, McGill. And I appreciate the works. I mean, I've mentioned this in the podcast before. And I'm not going to name this particular show, but I do remember seeing one show that pretty much depicted. To, let's just say Times Square is being maybe two or three blocks away from the World Trade Center. And for anyone who's <laughs> ever been to New York, well... <laughs> it, it, it's it's a little bit of a jaunt, isn't it there, Greg? Miles and miles apart. I mean, New York City is a big city. Which is not very far well, if you're slinging on a web, but... You know. I don't know. It, you know, lots of shows and lots of cities have that, those issues by son and I have been rewatching Chuck, which is a show we really enjoy, but there's this one scene early on where Chuck, who's working at the Buy More in Burbank, California, has to, uh, his car's out of order, so he has to borrow a bike, and then he shows up uh, at the Santa Monica Pier, like, you know, 10 minutes later. Really? <laughs> Ridden a bike from Burbank to Santa Monica, in time to help save the day. And I'm like, that would have taken him four hours. Um, <laughs> I've lived in LA everyone for... Everyone would be dead for by two, now. I lived in LA uh, for two years, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think even yeah. at three in the morning with no traffic, that's at least a 30, 40 minute drive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. drive, riding a bike. <laughs> <Over> <laughs> riding a bike. <laughs> yeah. Uh. 
Okay, that would have took me two days. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Even even right now, with with the whole world <laughs> shut down in, in L.A., I, I still don't think you would have gotten there in, you know, uh-huh. even in three hours. And by the way, I love Chuck. I love that show. But it was just this moment where my son and I were watching and we're just going, oh, come on. <laughs> you know, they were making this show in Burbank. They had to know they were full of it. But they're just like, well... Most people don't know how close Burbank is to the ocean, you know? <laughs> I've had checked uh, my viewing list. I've never actually seen it. Although one thing that I am adding to my viewing list, I've had it in the house for a while, and we're all under quarantine. I'm going to be checking out one of your favorites soon. We've got the whole series on DVD, Hill Street Blues. Ah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I still love Hill Street. Oh, nice. man. Nice. And, um... That- Hill Street is the origin of all modern television. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've heard that before. I read a book a few years ago called Difficult Men. It was all about shows like Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, etc. And the author of the book traced it all back to Hill Street Blues. Yeah, because okay, that's where you have to trace it back to. Hill Street changed the whole paradigm and everything that we watch now, particularly shows that you binge. Um, none of that existed. Everything was episodic before Hill Street. Yeah. Everything was 100% episodic. And by the end of the episode, you had to be where you were at the beginning. And if you weren't, then in the next episode, they just ignored any change that was made. Mm-hmm. Hill Street did it for uh, television in general. And then Cheers came in and did it for comedy. Um I At least the Cheers. first five seasons of Cheers. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, but Cheers couldn't have existed without Hill Street and, um, and everything else that followed from St. Elsewhere to ER to, yeah, Sopranos, Breaking Bad. Those don't exist if Hill Street doesn't come first. Right. And if you look at the credits on Hill Street, all the writers that came out of Hill Street um, is like a who's who list of of television show writers from uh, uh, the 90s and the 2000s and stuff like that. And then you can trace almost every showrunner on any show you love now back to one of these show's runners who worked for Botchko on Hill Street. Nice. I mean, I've... Uh... I've seen similar with animation. I recently, over the summer, I was bored and stuck at home. I rewatched a bunch of Sunbow-produced cartoons from the 80s, and I was seeing names like Bruce Timm and Frank Parr and the storyboard artists <laughs> credits. I mean, and those two have obviously gone on to do much bigger things since then. And... I gotta tell you, there was a, there was a year um, before a couple. A year or two before I started at Disney, where uh, somehow it, this is like the late '80s, where it, like all these other studios like Marvel or and uh, that were happening, all just like did not have work. And the only place in town producing shows for all the Saturday morning networks was at Deep. Do you guys remember Deep? D I C. Yes, yeah. I, I do know and, that. It, and, and, do it cheap, those guys. <laughs> And that year was when everybody was there that year. The, the guys you just mentioned, Bruce and Frank, uh, were there. Kevin Altieri, uh, John Chris Belushi, you know. It was like it was, it was nine months 
the whole industry was in one building. Yeah, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Hey, I, I, I even saw Greg's name in one of the written by credits for one of those Sunbow shows, a script that Greg wrote with um, Carrie Bates for Gem and the Holograms. <laughs> yeah, that was my first animation job, was writing, co-writing that one script for Sunbow. And um, we were reminiscing on the past, and probably to avoid the question that we're going to have to ask, because quite frankly, I feel bad because you've answered it before, but since this is the last episode of Spectacular Radio, we have to touch upon that, and I saw some people on Twitter giving you a little bit of grief over it earlier this week. I mean, most of the people I see are usually very respectful, but at least one or two of them kind of uh, stood out this time, but why wasn't... With this being kind of the definitive we hope to be and what we always tried to make it as, is a definitive show about this show. We we feel like we have to ask this question of why wasn't there a third season? Because we have to answer the question like when we're on little fan forums and they're, you know, and they're like, oh, why wasn't there a third season? We're like, okay. Mm -hmm. So... (laughs) simple answer i know i know it, it really is but people want to make i think people people's head cannons start you know, I, I, wild i i think that the answer is complicated it's just not as complicated as people you know it's not as conspiracy driven as people would like to think but right. it is a complicated answer usually whether a show, not always, unfortunately, but usually whether a show makes it an additional season is a pretty simple mathematical equation. Did it do well? You know, how much does it cost versus how much money it's bringing in? And unfortunately for us, the answer for a spectacular Spider-Man is more complicated than that. Um, and it goes back to the fact that before Marvel was a studio when it was just a comic book company, it would license its properties to other uh, studios. And so Sony had the license to do everything Spider-Man in entertainment. Obviously, the big ticket item for that in those days were the big Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Um, And we came in uh, as Sony's second animated Spider-Man show. Um, they had done this, a show for MTV already, and um, we came in and we were their second shot at doing Spider-Man in animation. But for Sony, the big money, obviously, was in the movies. And uh, at some point, uh, Marvel and Sony's relationship was fairly contentious, legally. Um, while we were at Sony, Marvel sued Sony three times over Spider-Man. And I don't mean over our show. I mean over the property in general. Uh, I don't know that those lawsuits ever went to court or anything like that. That's all way above my pay grade. But uh, I know one, that they we filed. Had, we had one part of that did affect us, our first DVD. Yeah, you're right. Um, it, it did, and, you know, because... Go ahead. That's true. Um, we had originally had plans 
to have extra footage. Uh, in, that, in essence, each of our arcs would be edited together as a movie. Everyone was well aware of those plans, but after the first DVD came out, Marvel sued Sony and said, you can't do this. Um, and you can only release them. Yeah, they said you can only release them as they aired on TV as three separate episodes. So, right. So, by the way, I, I think that would make that first DVD a collector's item. If whoever has it. I've still got it. So, you know, because of all this, at some point, while we were making season two, in order to get some concession on the feature film front, Sony agreed to give the uh, animation television rights back to Marvel. Of course, by this time, Marvel was a very successful uh, producer of movies in their own right. And you have to imagine there was some quantity of frustration over the fact that, you know, they're having all this success with Iron Man and Thor and, and Captain America, and they're building towards their Avengers movies and all that stuff, and yet their one big marquee character, Spider-Man, their single biggest character that they have, they can't make a movie about, and they can't make an animated series about. So at some point... Um, they got the animation rights back to uh, make Spider-Man. And that created a catch-22 for spectacular Spider-Man. And that catch-22 is straightforward enough, uh, which is that because Sony had given Marvel the rights back to do animated series for Spider-Man, Sony could no longer make Spectacular after the second season. Marvel couldn't make Spectacular either. Marvel couldn't make Spectacular either because Sony owned the version of Spider-Man that was Spectacular. So the only way Marvel could make Spectacular is that they licensed the Spectacular version from Sony. And you can sit there and go, well, then why didn't they do that? And it's like, because that would have been idiotic. And it really would have been. Mm -hmm. I understand why for us who made the show and for fans of the show, it doesn't sound idiotic. But financially, it's idiotic. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind, these are companies that have to earn money for their shareholders. Why would Marvel pay Sony, having gotten the rights back to the character, why would Marvel pay Sony to do their own character when they could just go and make their version? And I've never seen Ultimate Spider-Man. I have no opinion of it, so I know a lot of great people worked on it. But I've never seen it because there's no good news for me in watching it. If it's awful and they, frustrating, they, they had and if it's great, I'd be it, jealous. I think they had a different directive uh, once they got the right... And they did, the they had a... Of, uh, a different, yeah, uh, a very different direction set of marching orders for what the show was going to be. Mm-hmm. And yeah. but what it but it still comes down to the fact that Marvel had a chance to make their own Spider-Man cartoons. They wanted that, so why wouldn't they take it? Particularly if the alternative is paying Sony to do Spider-Man. Why would Marvel want yeah. to pay Sony to do Spider-Man? So that was, 
so that was at that time, right? So you've explained yeah. it very detailed, but it's basically Marvel has the rights to make the Spider-Man TV show, so they wanted to make their own. So that's what it boils down to for them. But right. the question that keeps getting asked now is, could they, could the show be rebooted and brought back? What do you think, And Brett? the answer is still basically no, because it doesn't make corporate sense. Right. In essence, again, in order for Marvel to do that, they'd have to pay Sony. Mm-hmm. And that's not how it's working right now. It's actually the reverse of that. People look at the Tom Holland Spider-Man movies and go, see, they're cooperating. But what they're not getting is it's the other way around. Sony is paying Marvel Studios right. to, uh, yes. to help them make Spider-Man movies with Tom Holland. Marvel is paying so. Sony. Yeah. <laughs> As long as they can make money on Spider-Man without having to do the spectacular Spider-Man, they will. If if there was somehow a financial gain to do it, that's the only possibility. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if there was some reason why literally no other Spider-Man show could ever make money, I suppose maybe, but I doubt it. But I suppose it's possible. But it, but that's a I mean that's a hypothetical that's so unrealistic because Spider Man is always going to make money and the yeah. fact of the matter is and I know we've talked about this before but when we were announced before we were on the air before anyone had seen our version of Spectacular I got all this and this was pre Twitter you know um, I got all this crap on the internet over, you know, why aren't you making more MTV Spider-Mans? That show was great. And I'm looking at that. <laughs> like, okay, these, these guys are like 13, 14 years old. And then, you know, someone else picks up on that and goes, what are you talking about? That show was awful. It's the 90s Spider-Man show that was great. And those people, I'm like, okay, they're in their they're 19, 20, 21 years old. And then someone else is going, you guys are all nuts. I know it had a silly name, but the only really good Spider-Man show that felt like Spider-Man was Spider-Man and his amazing friends. I'm like, okay, those guys are in their late 20s, early 30s. Um, and then someone else writes in and says, you're all crazy. There's only one good Spider-Man show, the only one with the good theme song, the only one that matters, and that's Ralph Bakshi 60s Spider-Man TV show. And I'm like, okay, that guy's my age. <laughs> uh, and, and what that means is that you know when you're a kid whatever spider-man show is your first great show is going to be the one that you have a passion for now you can get older and then sort of look at spectacular and go well you know i really appreciate this version of the show but there's certainly a generation for whom this was their spider-man show spectacular and then, yes, I like to think that we were better than that and that there were plenty of people who, even though it wasn't their show generationally, it's still a show that they love and appreciate because we got to the core of the characters and the core of the concept and all that stuff that we've been talking about now for 26 episodes. But there's no doubt in my mind that there are kids for whom Ultimate was the first show 
that they ever saw was Spider-Man. And they're going to love that show with the kind of passion that any kid who's exposed to Spidey for the first time will have. And that's what, you know, I can look objectively at the Ralph Bakshi Spider-Man show and go, yeah, this isn't really that great, but you're never going to convince me that I don't love it because it was my Spider-Man show. (laughs) It's the one that I grew up with that first exposed me to the character even before the comics and made me want to go buy the comics. That was my Spider-Man show. And so, yeah, next to Spectacular, which I love for very different reasons, my second favorite Spider-Man show is the 60s Batsy Spider-Man show. Because that's the one that, as a kid, meant something to me because it's the one that introduced me to the character. I agree to the, 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 the generational thing to a certain point. But just based on the fans and the critical reviews, I think I think it's more along the lines. I think it it was that way up until Spectacular Spider-Man. It's kind of like Batman, the animated series versus the filmation Batman yes. or the other animated Batman. You know, I saw those as a kid, but I think anyone could once they get beyond being a kid and they start uh, critically looking at all the animated Batman, there's sort of no question. Right. Uh, Even though a six year old may like today's, you know, Justice League action version of Batman. Right. But when that kid gets a little older, I think he's going to say Batman, the animated series. I think it's to say I think based on the response of the fans and uh, people who have written reviews and and critics, I kind of think and hope that's the same for Spectacular Spider-Man. I hope so. I mean, we certainly set out, and Vic knows this as well as I do, we absolutely set out very clearly in our head, not that we were trying to emulate Batman the Animated Series, because they're two very different characters, two very different styles, two very different properties, but we set out really consciously, and I know I said this in interviews back in the day, to make a show that was as definitive for Spider-Man as Batman the Animated Series was for Batman. We consciously had that in mind. And I would say at the time, look, this is a naive or an arrogant goal, but that's (laughs) the goal we've set for ourselves. It's for other people to judge whether we succeeded. But that was without a doubt the goal that we were trying to achieve, to create something that was so definitive that people would look back and go, this was Spider-Man. And I like to think to some extent we succeeded, and if we had gotten more seasons, I think it would have been more obvious that we were definitive than I, it is even now. But it, but it still, that doesn't change the fact, and this is what I was getting at, is that the notion of Marvel going back to Spectacular with all the corporate and financial reasons not to, when they can just keep trying to make a new one, is kind of pie in the sky. Look, and, and I'm a guy who believes in bringing stuff back. Obviously, <laughs> we managed to bring back Young Justice. Right. No one thought we could do that. I still think there's a real chance of bringing back Gargoyles. I'm not yeah. saying it's a slam dunk, but I think it's a real possibility. But I look at the corporate 
contractual and financial problems with Spectacular. And believe me, I'm not happy about this. It's not like I'm going, yay, we can't bring it back. I'm just saying <laughs> that the reality is I don't see a pathway to bringing Spectacular back. I just don't see how it could happen. I'd love to be proven wrong. Don't believe me. <laughs> but, I, I mean, I would love for Vic and I to get a call and have Marvel say, guys, we want to bring back Spectacular, or Sony, or whoever. Disney, you know, calling us and saying that. But I don't see a realistic pathway to that. Uh, and I wish I was I, I would, again, love to be proven wrong. I hope I am wrong. But I, I think also I think, don't want to I lie one, to I think, I think one other possible pie in the sky is, yeah, you can't literally pick up with episode 27, same exact character design, everything, and it call, be called the Spectacular Spider-Man. But the other pie in the sky is another Spider-Man series. It's all the same. Yeah, I mean characters. they could they could call yeah. us up and say, "Hi, we'd like to hire you guys to do a Spider-Man series. Can't be spectacular, but we'll hire you, and we'll go." Yeah, we won't be called that, but we, uh, but we, we could Keaton to play Spider-Man. I mean, at, at some point, it becomes this sort of lawyerly question of how close can we get without going over the line and get <laughs> getting sued, you know? And uh, and I'm. I'm game. Marvel wants to give me a call, they can give me a call, but I'm not holding my breath either. And the thing I really want to say here, because this is what this, Greg is right. This week I got kind of hammered on Twitter. Um, <laughs> and it was just mind boggling. Um, but the thing I want to say, other than the fact is that it's not like I'm happy about this. This is just a situation. It's that I was actually kind of being attacked for not lying to the fans. For not um, giving them <laughs> false hope. It was like, why are you raining on my parade? Why are you, you know, being such a jerk about this? And I'm like, so, uh, you'd rather I lie to you? Um, <laughs> That's amazing. Oh. Uh, and I guess sometimes the answer to that question on the Internet is, Yeah. Why to me? Please. It's work for the president. Why won't you do it? Well, the, 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 the answer that's always the answer for that on the Internet is unlikely. That's really the answer. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And look, may I, I, I mean, may... at one point two weeks ago, uh, someone said, tweeted something nice about Spectacular, and I responded with a smiley face. Not a winky face, keep in mind, a smiley face. And I got 60,000 tweets in response saying, what does that mean? Uh, does that mean it's coming back? I'm like, no. And they're like, why did you get our hopes up? I'm like, I didn't. That's on you. I'm sorry. I, I was just glad that someone said something nice about Spectacular. That's wasn't meant to imply anything. And the fact that you interpreted a smiley face as a hint that we were coming back is ridiculous. Um, wow. You know, it, oh, man. 
Uh, I, I'm going to interject briefly and just say something I've noticed you did not mention Disney in any of this, and that is because, as most people know, Disney the Disney buyout happened after the animation rights were handed back. I found for years on the internet that Disney is this easy villain to blame for everything, even though that is very often, sometimes, very often not the case. Maybe because they're just gigantic global conglomerate so they make it so it's a juicy talking point but it's usually bs and i say this as someone who is a huge fan of a certain disney property which i wish had gotten treated a little bit better but i also understand the realities of why things went the way they did well and and look, I mean, I, look it's easy to make disney a bill and i agree with you uh i think that uh, it's almost funny to make Disney a villain. Um, I had a lot of good years at Disney. Um, and, uh, you know, Disney's also done some things that I don't love here and there. But you're absolutely right. All this stuff that I'm talking about went down just before the Disney buyout of Marvel. And... So all of this would have happened whether or not Disney bought Marvel. Now, what, uh, what is true is that Disney buying Marvel then complicated things even more. Mm -hmm. um, but the fundamental problem of Marvel owning Spider-Man and Sony owning Spectacular doesn't change whether or not Disney owns Marvel. That fundamental catch-22 is still there. And and so you can be mad at Disney in the sense that you're mad at Marvel, I suppose, but there's not much reason to be mad at Marvel or Disney or Sony for that matter. Yeah. It's yeah. just as an unfortunate result of a corporate thing. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, without Marvel, we would never would have had Spectacular. Without Sony, we never would have had Spectacular. Without Disney, we wouldn't have had any, anywhere to air the second season of Spectacular. And you never would have seen season two, even. So mm -hmm. it, it's sort of ridiculous to get mad at any of these organizations because it's not that they're perfect. It's not that they're awful. It's not either of those things. It's just that... The problem with Spectacular has nothing to do with personality. It has nothing to do with conspiracy theories. It just has to do with uh, a corporate negotiation that happened to catch Spectacular in the switches. And it's a bummer. Don't get me wrong. I'm not glad about it. <laughs> um, hell, I was out of, you know, I lost a job. You guys lost a show. Vic and I got... Let Fire. go because there was yeah. no show for us to do. Um, right. But but it, it isn't a uh, it isn't an issue of villain, you know. It just isn't. Uh, I don't think we could have said that any made that explanation no. any better ourselves, and and that's one of the reasons that we knew uh, when we were kind of building up towards this episode. I, I basically told Bashansky, I said. You know we're gonna have to ask the question. Yeah. You just know you know you're gonna we're gonna have to. And then for you to be you know a, kind of attacked about it on on Twitter this week was just kind of like, oh, that's just the universe you know helping us out a little bit. Mm, I don't know if that was helping anyone out, but it certainly well, added some passion, and I really did appreciate that greg that was beautiful Absolutely. we're coming up on the hour so she would probably wrap up i'm going to give both of you the last word but before we do 
go, I do want to thank you so much for the show that you made, yes. for coming onto this podcast as much as you have, for giving us as much as you have. I mean, on this show, the other shows that you've worked on, because, Greg, I've loved all of your shows so far, and I hope to continue doing that. And, um, Zach, do you want to say anything else before we let Greg uh, yeah, and Vic uh, share their final thoughts? Say, I, I love how you say so far, like... Um, I don't know so far. I don't know about what's coming next, but so far you've done okay. <laughs> I, I think you know that's not how I meant for it to come out. <laughs> oh man, no. I, I, I'm just gonna echo Greg. Um, when we set out to do this show, we didn't think we'd get past season one. The fact that we're here at the end of the show um, is such a such a been such a treat, such an honor to get to know you guys. Yes. Um, Vic as well, I, you know, get to talk to you as many times as I have. And, and so I just to be able to host this show on our website, you know, when I started that website back in 1998, I never anticipated doing something like this. So, uh, such a treat, such an honor, such a privilege. So I'll let you guys have the, with that, I'll let you have the last. I have a question. When did you guys start this podcast? What year was it again? 2014. (laughs) 2014. Wow. Wow. Lots of delays and lots of uh, starts and stops, but here we are six years later. It took us six years to tell a two-year-long story, but that's okay. <laughs> the other podcast took ten years to tell a two-year-long story, so that's there's that. So, <laughs> but thank you guys for for being thank a part of you. it. So, I'll, Vic, I'll, we'll start with you. We'll let you have the last word. Well, thank you guys and everyone on the Keep the Spectacular Spider-Man fan page. Uh, I mean, we're here talking about the show because of you guys, really. You and the fans uh, loving the show. Um, It's a while ago, but uh, uh, I have great memories of the crew and how dedicated they were. I want to thank all of them for all their hard work, the cast and crew. Fantastic bunch. Uh, Michael Vogel. for helping us all along the way. And um, it, it was a great experience. I was glad to be a part of it. So thank you guys. Um, I, I mean, I'd echo everything that Vic just said. Uh, great cast, great crew, um, and Bogle, without a doubt, the unsung hero of the whole thing, because without him, um, hey, you know, I never would have been brought on. And if I'm not brought on, Vic's not brought on. And, uh, and then on top of that, him protecting us uh, all throughout the two seasons um, and, and you know, talking me down off the occasional wedge. Um, so, yeah, much thanks to Michael. Um, and, yeah, to the fans. I mean, you know, we set out to do something. I, I think to a certain extent we succeeded. It didn't last quite as long as any of us hoped. Um, but. You know, we got 26 half hours that I'm extremely proud of and and thrilled that the fans really love it. Um, and and I thank you guys for dedicating, you know, uh, six years of your lives to helping us talk about these stories. It's been great. Um, Jennifer and everyone else who, who came on the podcast and talked, um, it's really been uh, terrific. So thank you. Thank you, both of you. I, I, I just want to do two more, like, little extra special thanks to Josh Keaton and Sean Galloway. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yes. 
Menken? Seriously? <laughs> you bought that! <laughs> <laughs>